Welcome to the Optimum Nutrition Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Optimum Nutrition. ION is one of Europe's longest established nutritional therapy training providers. Our aim is to support people in making a positive impact on their lives with food. I'm Alice Ball, Communications Officer at ION. Each week, I'm going to be interviewing a guest from the world of nutrition. We'll be delving into their health journey and touching on some common health conditions with the aim of inspiring you to be your most optimally healthy and happiest self. I'm pleased to welcome Kirsty Cullen to today's episode. Kirsty is the CEO of the Optimum Health Clinic, an integrative medicine clinic specializing in the diagnosis and management of ME, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. Today, Kirsty unpacks the history and stigma behind CFS, including research behind physiological and psychological triggers. We also chat about the similarities and differences between CFS and long COVID, as well as evidence surrounding current medical advice for ME, including graded exercise therapy and CBT. Kirsty is a font of knowledge when it comes to CFS, and this episode is packed with research studies and expertise. If you enjoy the episode, please do subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a review. For more information about nutritional therapy, you can also visit ion.ac.uk. Otherwise, here is Kirsty Cullen on the Optimum Nutrition Podcast. Kirsty Cullen, welcome to the Optimum Nutrition Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's lovely to have you on. Now, I always start by asking my guests to name their top three kitchen essentials. So these are three things that we're always going to find in your fridge, freezer and kitchen cupboards. So I think my fridge is dominated by snacks that try to encourage my family to eat in a healthy way. So I would think that we always have chopped watermelon in there, um, always hummus and chopped carrots as well. Add a push, I would add my dual dates and nut butter to that, but I appreciate that's now five foods. These are great, you know, post-school munchy snacks to try and keep everyone on track. I love those, a little bit different. Uh (laughs) Now, you did work in executive recruitment for 10 years. So I first of all want to know, what is it that made you take an interest in nutrition and then ultimately pursue this as a career? Yeah, sure. So I guess my journey began when I took maternity leave, actually, from recruitment. And, you know, really early on, my daughter had health issues, including really acute widespread eczema and regurgitation And I remember being appalled at the suggestion that, you know, corticosteroid cream was the only answer for such a young baby. So I started researching, which led me to believe that she had issues with food intolerances, you know, specifically dairy at the time. And so I eliminated dairy carefully from her diet and I replaced it with sort of alternatives to meet her nutrient needs. But her issues very quickly and completely disappeared and it completely circumvented the need for steroids in her case so I guess I was really wowed by you know the therapeutic power of food and I made a decision at that point to leave recruitment behind and and retrain at BCNH as a, a nutritional therapist. Wow and then where did you go from there because I believe you spent a fair few years working in sports nutrition. I did. Indeed, I was really privileged to work with Derby County and also St. George's Park, working with 
the entire sort of football team at Derby, all the way down to sort of the academy kids. And then at St. George's, I worked with the football managers, actually. Really interesting to look at the impact of stress and anxiety of running a football team on their health and to support them. So it was a really interesting period. I learned a lot. And then from there, you've been at the Optimum Health Clinic now for 10 years. How did you then transition from working in sports nutrition to chronic fatigue syndrome? Yes, I mean, my journey with OHC actually began before my sports nutrition work. When I was studying at BCNH, I was looking for a role to support my studies financially, actually. And I came across a nutrition support role at the Optimum Health Clinic you know, it immediately piqued my interest. OHC, for those that don't know, is an integrative clinic which specializes in working with people with MECFS. And I had grown up with a mother who had been acutely affected by CFS in my teenage years. I mean, really to the point where she used to drive me to school in her pajamas. Then she'd go straight back home and crawl into bed and she would stay there until she needed to collect me from school at the end of the day. So despite what was a wonderfully sympathetic and forward thinking GP for the time, actually, who really gave her permission to rest as her initial key recovery focus, past that were really very fearful to her and she never had an opportunity to fully understand her illness and that's always really stuck with me so to have the opportunity to work with a clinic who offered much needed and valuable and effective support for those with chronic fatigue you know really felt like fate in a sense I guess and I think that typifies the clinical team at OHC you know the vast majority of us have either suffered with chronic fatigue ourselves, or we have close personal experiences with family members who have. And that offers us, I think, a really unique passion and an insight into working with the fatigue community. Definitely, because I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of chronic fatigue and perhaps some of the stigma that's associated with it. Because in the past, it's been called so-called yuppie disease. And I suppose having your mum been through it herself, then you can obviously relate to that and you can help to break down some of the stigma. Yeah, and I think to do this, it's really interesting to look at some of the history around MECFS, specifically the past research and press coverage, in order to recognise not only where the associated stigma that has prevailed around CFS you know, originated from, but also to understand that it still remains to be one of the most controversial and misunderstood medical conditions, arguably. And you know, there are various reasons, I think, why it's misunderstood. There is a lack of well-designed large-scale studies, and that has really impacted on our scientific understanding of it as a condition. Also, MECFS is typified by a really variable clinical picture in terms of the pattern of its progression, the symptomology, the disease severity even. You know, that is a is hugely variable person to person. And so it becomes really difficult where clinicians are set on attempting to find a one-size-fits-all clinical solution. There's also a lack of a universally recognized biomarker. And 
interestingly, there are clinical clues if you look back retrospectively at the research and conduct a research review. And this is not an exhaustive research review by any means, but I thought it useful to have a look at some of the historical research and how that's really directed the perception of ME-CFS. Before I do that, though, Alice, I will extend a special mention to Claire Sahinson, who is our head of research at OHC, who spends literally hours reviewing MECFS research and extrapolating the salient points for our clinical use. So I must mention her here, um, most certainly. But even as early as 1955, with a fatigue outbreak at the Royal Free Hospital in London, which is, is very famous now, low lymphocytes and high lactate dehydrogenase were identified, which might be considered characteristic of a viral infection. Interestingly, the Lancet termed this illness a year later as benign myalgic encephalomyelitis. So myalgic muscle pain, encephalomyelitis, brain inflammation and, and neuroimmune disorder potentially. But interestingly, at that point, it was still considered a, a physical disease. Later research then by um, Shane and Peterson, which we'll talk about in a second, and then by Komarov, pointed towards other markers such as, you know, low natural killer cell activity and reactivation of various herpes viruses within the clinical picture. And then latterly, more, more recent research indicates widespread inflammation, oxidative burden, neuropathy. But I think there were some key turning points in terms of classification and public perception. There was a research review in 1970 that looked at the Royal Free outbreak and concluded that mass hysteria was likely the explanation for the condition. And they put that down to a higher female incidence seen within the condition at the time and almost completely kind of dismissed the, the viral evidence, which is so interesting. And, you know, some people might argue that they failed to interview patients and nursing staff and, and there wasn't sort of a really thorough review of that data. But that conclusion really impacted future research so negatively as a suggestion was kind of formed that it was a condition of the mind and a psychiatric consideration, which fundamentally impacted on the drive to find you know, new biochemical markers. And further to that, there was a 1985 fatigue outbreak in Nevada, and that was the one that was documented by Cheney and Peterson. And they recorded actually Epstein-Barr virus and herpes, HHV4 antibodies in literally over 200 of the patients. So they firmly believed there to be an infectious element. But interestingly, again, the CDC later dismissed the viral theory and discounted it really as a serious illness. And again, in coming to that conclusion, you might argue that it wasn't a thorough data review. But we move forwards from that, and then we have the phrase yuppie flu coined, and then further to the PACE trial, you know, Oxford University concluded that ME was not actually a chronic illness. And, you know, these classifications and assertions and opinions fundamentally changed public perception and for a time the direction of the research in a harmful way. And it's so interesting because here we are still now with no agreed pathological mechanism or exact etiology. Yes, because to get a diagnosis of ME, is there a set tick box of symptoms that you need? How does one get a diagnosis? 
Yeah, and it is still at this point, you know, a diagnosis of exclusion. And so we have to rule out other potential diagnoses first before we can kind of land on on the MECFS diagnosis. That is frustrating because that, you know, takes time. Certainly, you know, we can come and talk about that when we talk about sort of, you know, triggers and signs and symptoms later. But it is a very difficult process and can take often in excess of a year in most patients. Yeah, because you're obviously feeling this fatigue or whatever else your symptoms are for a really long time in some cases. And I imagine how devastating that can be if you just can't get a reason for that. It is. And I mean, just to bring this into context, there was a study in 2008 where CFS was compared to other chronic, acute and severe illnesses, including anxiety disorders, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, lung cancer even. And CFS was shown to have more illness intrusiveness So that is the symptoms intruding more on daily life than any of those other conditions by a significant margin. And that study is really important because in terms of demonstrating the impact of the illness, we need to try and reshape the outdated public perception of CFS that still regards this as all in the mind or even worse as some form of laziness or or simply not a chronic and severe condition. And OHC actually funded an economic impact study in conjunction with 2020 Health, which demonstrated that the total cost to the UK economy of MECFS in 2014-2015 was at least £3.3 billion, and the cost to UK health services was £542 million. There's other research that shows that 81% of MECFS carers our spouses and partners, and you know, 16% of carers are, are actually children. And around 85% of MECFS sufferers have experienced loss of employment due to their illness. So, you know, the impact is huge and it's entirely frustrating for those who have their lives impacted by CFS to still feel invisible and misrepresented or worse, kind of, you know, misunderstood and and stigmatised. Absolutely. And I feel it's probably relevant here to talk about long COVID and how this is perhaps changing do you think the stigma around CFS? It's really interesting actually and we've talked to our kind of client database around this just to sort of gauge their perception because we felt initially there was a a huge excitement almost that we'd have a spotlight and funding shone on us as an area. There are undeniable similarities between ME-CFS and long COVID although they are completely diagnostically distinct obviously. We've been busy extending and sort of developing our existing protocols in order to support those with long COVID. But actually, when you look at some of the most common long COVID symptoms, they look very familiar to the MECFS community. You know, you've got fatigue, brain fog, muscle aches, headaches, insomnia, anxiety, cognitive issues, dizziness, palpitations. So There are similarities, yet there are still distinct differences, certainly in terms of diagnosis and recognition, research funding. But also what's up for consideration here, going back to the earlier point, is that the ME Association points out that it can take 
for 82% of CFS patients, I believe, over 12 months to get a diagnosis, whereas the process is very different in cases of long COVID. Onset of ME-CFS can take months or even longer, and there's no you know, one specific trigger as with COVID. And also long COVID is already more universally accepted and recognized than ME-CFS, arguably. So there's still quite a distinction in amongst the patient group in that long COVID patients don't necessarily want to be associated as ME-CFS sufferers. And ME-CFS sufferers still sort of see a, a distinction potentially at this point. But the tools nutritionally and to some extent psychologically that we would use for MECFS would be very similar to working with long COVID clients when it comes to working on persisting, you know, chronic fatigue. Our head of research, Claire, recently wrote in ICANN magazine. And the point that, that she made actually was that mitochondrial support is always going to be a consideration for those with, you know, intracellular infections. And those pathogens use our ATP pool, our energy currency, and our micronutrients to sort of facilitate their replication and, and survival. So, you know, it's important to recognize that as a similarity between the two when we're, we're looking at those types of clients in clinic. I think that's really interesting that you note that there is a very clear cause of long COVID, whereas with CFS, there are so many different factors that could contribute. And as you said, you can often have a long lead in time rather than long COVID. Obviously, it's quite obvious after you've had it that you are suffering. So what are some of the potential triggers and causes of CFS? Gosh, so this is a really interesting discussion. And it's complex and it should be a really sort of thorough clinical approach in that sense. It is important to say it's still considered as a neurological disease by the World Health Organization. Realistically, though, there's likely to be a number of systems involved. And, you know, that includes immune system, endocrine system, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal systems, as well as considering, you know, kind of cellular energy production. So we would suggest at OHC that there's a, a real jigsaw puzzle of etiological factors to consider, which makes each case so similar, but individual, if that makes sense. You know, research suggests that we've got around 250,000 people in the UK with CFS, but there's a huge lack of diagnosis, I would suggest. Female prominence of two to one, females to males. There's also a commonality in terms of age. So we might look commonly between 20 to 40 in adults and in adolescents 13 to 15, but certainly we see much younger and, and older clients. And as we said earlier, diagnosis is still a diagnosis of exclusion, which you know means that we need to rule out other things. But fundamentally, from a diagnostic perspective, we're looking at ongoing debilitating fatigue for more than four months. We're looking at fatigue that's not alleviated by rest. We're looking at fatigue severity that necessitates a reduction in life activities. And then we're looking at a range of other factors, you know, things like palpitations, dizziness, nausea, headaches, cognitive dysfunction, the list very similar to the, the long COVID one we just mentioned. It's really interesting that clinically, we then see a range of additional factors that overlap. So we see fibromyalgia, um, sensitivity to stimuli, visual disturbances, 
cause stress tolerance, autoimmunity, insomnia, and IBS. So the symptom pool is really large and varied. And therefore, you know, you might summarize that the diagnostic criteria needs to be mindful of that. So in terms of triggers, the triggers may vary. Um, So they may include things like viral, pathogenic, and bacterial insults, trauma, both physiological and psychological. We want to consider toxic insults. So, you know, things like mycotoxins, heavy metals, plastics, and also nutrient deficiencies. Aside that, we want to be considering immune status, gastrointestinal health, endocrine balance, mitochondrial capacity, toxic burden, certainly when looking at a case. There is a long history of viral infections as associated with CFS, as, as that sort of earlier research review suggested. And that's you know, well researched in terms of the studies. It's not true for all cases, but some research might suggest that you know, up to 50% of any CFS illness is preceded by a viral illness. But not one virus, though, and this is really important. I think there's always been this hunt for the one virus that precedes Herpes viruses are very commonly associated, but we do consider a range of different virus and bacteria when we're assessing a case at the clinic. And I think it's really important at this point to note that what differentiates ME sufferers from healthy individuals who manage immune insults perfectly well and toxic challenges perfectly well is that immune dysfunction or suboptimal function or the host response is likely to be different in those with MECFS, and it's very atypical. So it's likely that we see the perfect storm of immune activation and immune suppression, autoimmunity, even viral reactivation, that might well be kind of both the cause and effect. And I think part of that is understanding that viral infections have the capacity to impact on neurological symptoms and gastrointestinal symptoms, and even decrease our ATP levels, which of course is our our energy currency. So there's a plethora, a plethora of symptoms and a plethora of triggers that at worst, you know, can render people bed bound or ill for years. So it is a very intrusive condition that can be incredibly impactful. Yeah, you mentioned viruses there. Is a post-viral fatigue different to CFS or does it come under the same umbrella? Classically, it's been distinct, but I think that we sort of look underneath that big umbrella that you mentioned. So where we have a case sitting in front of us, we really look at it from a functional perspective. So we're not only going to look at viral challenges, but we're also going to look at gastrointestinal issues, things like IBS or potential placebo. We're going to look at adrenal issues. We're going to look at the bigger endocrine picture. We're going to look at past trauma. And not every single one of those elements appears in every case. So it's a matter of finding the jigsaw puzzle pieces for each case and then creating a functional roadmap that really addresses each of those in turn and in the right order. That's really important. I suppose what you're saying is, can some people be a bit more predisposed to having CFS than others? So if there is this trigger, for instance, glandular fever, Epsom-Barr, obviously not everybody who has glandular fever is going to get CFS after. So it is just so individual. Yeah, and usually when we look back at the history, we'll look at maybe the point that that glandular fever acted as the straw that broke the camel's back or the catalyst to really having that kind of initial CFS crash. 
But usually when you look back at the years preceding, there's a number of clinical clues that start to build and that boatload sort of starts to fill with sort of various things coming on board, whether that be, you know, stress or, or trauma, gastrointestinal issues or other sort of, you know, immune issues. So generally you can start to track the, the progression But as I say, it varies in each case. Yeah, it's really interesting, definitely. Another thing I wanted to ask was when you receive a diagnosis of ME-CFS, is that something you have for life? Can you ever be, quote unquote, cured of CFS? Yeah, and I think this is one of the most harmful things. I think a lot of clients that come to our clinic have been told this is it. You can't get better. This is kind of the status quo. And one thing that we do when people leave the clinic is we kind of go back through that diagnostic criteria and see if that still applies. And often people will say to me, you know, what is recovery? Um, What does it look like? And it can look very different for different people. You know, some people who are potentially bed bound at the start of the process just want energy capacity enough to live the life in their house and and sort of close to home. Other people who had a very active life previously want to kind of regain that same level of activity. But what's always really interesting to assess for people who are classic kind of achiever types and have pushed through and, you know, had that perfectionist tendency where they've driven themselves past their capacity in the first place, which may well have contributed to the condition. We almost need to sort of retrain that from a psychological perspective in that expectations need to change to sustain good health going forwards. And that's really important part of the psychology work that we do. Mm, Absolutely. So let's chat about the approach that you work with at the Optimum Health Clinic. How would you approach somebody who came to you with CFS? Are there certain protocols that you follow? We don't have a single protocol. What we do is we have a a multidisciplinary approach. So we have the nutrition team who will look at nutrition, diet and lifestyle tools. And then we have the psychology team who work with a range of different psychology tools. So what we're aiming to do is build a toolkit essentially for each client. To do that, though, we need to kind of overview that case. As I say, we need to break down and have a look at what the factors may be. We build a clinical roadmap then with those various factors under consideration. And then we'll start to apply those various dietary and supplement lifestyle and psychological tools and work slowly because every single case is different. And we'll get some people who are extremely acutely ill when they first approach us and tools in that particular case won't be the same as tools that we might use for somebody who is entering what we would call reintegration phase so they've done the lion's share of their work but there's still some progress to be made so this careful consideration about the entry point and the order in which you know we might approach the case in question. Would that be the same with sort of approaching food and supplements? Because if you were really far down the scale where you have quite severe ME, I imagine it's quite hard to even feed yourself. So with them, are you focusing more on supplements, just trying to get the nutrients in them? It's a combination of things. So when we're looking at the diet, we look at really easy, accessible kind of meal planning and that type of thing. And actually, if you get somebody who's very acutely ill and in a crash state, quite often they're quite hypersensitive to foods and supplements. So if you attempted to deliver, you know, a 10 supplement protocol to somebody within that sort of hypersensitive state, you're going to get a lot of supplement reactivity. So 
we tend to work with the speed that the client requires. And, you know, for some, until we calm the sympathetic nervous system down and we do work on, on the gut and on the immune system, it can be very difficult to throw in a load of supplements and a big sort of range of foods. Whereas latterly, what we see is that hypersensitivity calms down as we get to grips with the condition. And then we can sort of start to introduce other foods and, you know, a range of, of different supplemental supports. And what would be some of the nutrients in terms of fatigue, energy that you'd really try and focus on? There are such a range. And I think, again, this comes down to assessing each case. So we're going to look at where their specific nutrient deficiencies sit. And it's really important to address those on a case by case basis and have that data in front of you. There are, you know, some classic nutrients that are known to be really beneficial when you're supporting the mitochondria. So things like magnesium, B12, the B-complex nutrients, you know, specifically nutrients that help with the carriage of energy substrate into the mitochondria, you know, things like L-carnitine. So we would build generally a group of nutrients that might support mitochondrial function. But it's really important to understand that you can put the best diet and supplement protocol in place and it have no effect because actually you haven't dealt with the foundations of that case first, i.e. gastrointestinal function, digestive ability, access to nutrient absorption, how we get nutrients from the bloodstream into the cell. There are lots of steps that kind of proceed almost establishing that perfect diet and and supplement protocol. And I have a lot of people come to the clinic who have spent a lot of years doing the very best they can with diet and supplements and not feeling any effect. So it's not always the right thing to do to go straight in with those mitochondrial support supplements. It's really interesting because the way you talk about it in this multidisciplinary approach, it's so optimistic and it just seems like there's so many options. But say someone wants to go to the GP for it currently in the medical approach what support is offered for somebody who suspects that they might have ME? I mean this kind of raises the whole question really of the recent NICE guidance and attempt to review that and so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that Alice because that kind of fits in really with our discussion here you know Currently, NICE guidance offers graded exercise therapy and CBT as sort of the key tools. It's a very interesting discussion because recently NICE worked for an extended period of time to revamp those guidelines and they had a really thorough process. You know, they wanted to produce guidance which rejected sort of the one-size-fits-all mentality and recognised that NECFS is a really complex multi-system illness and it needs to be sort of approached as such. And that diverse consultation process incorporated views from the fatigue sector and followed a thorough review of the literature. But ultimately, full agreement around those new recommendations hasn't yet been found. That's highly frustrating, I think, for the fatigue community who already feel underrepresented and invisible. And it's our hope that there'll be a continued consultation process, which will ultimately result in the release of guidance that truly reflects the need for a multifaceted clinical toolkit. 
because I think laboring on reliance of a single therapy, something like graded exercise therapy, that has actually been you know, widely discredited and, and criticized, is not the most clinically effective or, or respectful way to represent the fatigue community. Those are the tools that the NHS has at its disposal right now, but we can do better and we should do better. And that's really important to say. Definitely. So for those listening, the last NICE guidelines for ME were published in 2007, I believe, and they were due to be published again in August. These new ones that were going to exclude graded exercise therapy and CBT, but they've now been postponed. So we don't have these new guidelines yet. So graded exercise therapy is incremental stages of exercise gradually so whether or not it just starts off as being able to walk a few meters building up to be able to go on a proper walk and and from there but why is it that they want to take these out of the guidelines so what what is the evidence around graded exercise therapy and perhaps why it's not successful yeah and i think to answer this question we we kind of need to look back at the pace trial itself which took place in 2011 there were 641 participants it was the largest trial in CFS, there were five million pounds spent on this study, and it still obviously dominates UK MECFS policy to this day. What they concluded within the context of that study was that cognitive behavioral therapy and graded exercise therapy were moderately beneficial, whereas adaptive pacing therapy was not. And that outcome really influenced treatment guidelines. Crucially, though, what's really important to understand is that over 100 specialists and invested parties requested an independent review of that data and the outcomes. And that included academics, patient groups, scientists, lawyers. And consequently, its outcomes were hugely criticized due to poor study design. So the issues that they discovered were that, you know, the recovery and effectiveness definitions were changed partway through the trial. There was a patient selection bias. So there was a real exclusion of severely ill patients, which of course is is always an issue when you're trying to capture CFS within a research model. There were subjective outcome measures that were not necessarily validated. And so as a result of the PACE trial, what happened was that the press deemed it possible to recover from MECFS with exercise and you know, positive thinking. And consequently, it wasn't you know, classed as a chronic illness then by Oxford University. And the, the idea behind graded exercise therapy is that if you increase activity and overcome exercise fear or exercise avoidance, muscle health will improve, deconditioning of muscles will be reduced and the illness will be resolved. Now, this was discounted by the ME Association survey in 2010. They surveyed over 2,000 CFS sufferers who reported that graded exercise therapy made 56.5% of participants worse. And I think for anyone who has worked with an ME CFS client, they will recognize that attempting to use graded exercise therapy in an acute crash phase in MECFS is completely counterproductive at best actually and harmful at worst because within a crash phase, 
the last thing you want to be doing is pushing exercise. The thing you want to be doing is resting and allowing the body to recover. There is a time for pacing. There is a time for working within the energy envelope, but sort of a, you know, a systematic push on exercise therapy is not always the answer. So it is a very contentious piece of research that still continues to underpin CFS policy in the UK. And now NICE, I believe, either last year or the year before, did publish something about this energy envelope that you mentioned there and sticking within it. So what does this mean? So we look at it from a pacing perspective. So it's finding your energy boundary and that boundary will change throughout the process of improvement. So in a crash phase, that boundary is going to be very kind of low. And, you know, certainly we'll find that even with clients walking upstairs may well push them beyond that pacing capacity. And why we want to avoid stepping beyond that boundary is that there is a tendency then to enter sort of a boom bust pattern whereby we're active, but then we crash with post-exertional malaise and it takes a few days then to recover. So the first step really is to find what we would call the baseline. So the baseline of activity that you can safely work within without overexerting and without entering that kind of boom bust pattern. And you know, gradually as we work to improve the physiology and psychology within a case, we'll see generally that that pacing boundary starts to lift and, and almost the glass ceiling sort of starts to get a little bit higher. But it is a real skill and there's no algorithm that kind of says, right, this is where my pacing boundary is. But it's a really important part of recovery process. It almost sounds as if as well, the recovery process from CFS isn't linear. You could go up and down and have good spots and worse spots. Is that true? Yeah, I would say so, most certainly. And actually, there is a really interesting paper by Lewis Nakul, which kind of addresses this hypothesis. You know, his colleagues kind of suggest the hypothesis that in early CFS, we might start in a hypermetabolic state where the body is inflamed and really reactive and where energy expenditure is high in order to deal with various insults to health. This may then progress according to their hypothesis in more chronic CFS, where we kind of come into a hypometabolic state where you know, poor mitochondrial function might be the hallmark. We might also see central nervous system dysfunction or lower grade inflammation rather than a real sort of pro-inflammatory state. And then we might see the typical hallmark of post-exertional malaise and more profound fatigue. And certainly we have a, a cross-section of what looks very similar to this in clinic from the acutely hypersensitive reactive cases to the more chronic cases which may be characterized by poor ATP or energy currency provision and poor ATP recycling. So we recognize in a sense that kind of hypothesis and we structure our protocols and approaches around a recognition of different stages within MECFS. And it's certainly not linear. As you say, we might consider that MECFS sufferers cycle between these metabolic states depending on you know the challenges that are involved in the clinical picture you know toxins viral bacterial immune challenges stress anxiety trauma 
And where this is the case, then obviously our clinical approaches and tools that we use to support someone need to be closely allied to the stage that that person finds themselves in. And that will vary hugely dependent on the stage of their illness. I think it would be great to chat a little bit about the work that you're doing at the Optimum Health Clinic as well, and perhaps some of the approaches you use and if you're doing any research. Yes, so we're busy. We're always really busy, Alice, actually. So the first thing to mention is that Alex Howard, who is our chairman and obviously founded um, the Optimum Health Clinic, is releasing his second book, um, which is Decode Your Fatigue. Um, That is now on on pre-order and published on the 12th of October, I believe. So you can certainly find out more about that on the website, which is literally just www.decodeyourfatigue.com. And we've also recently published a couple of articles in ICANN magazine, really to raise the profile of fatigue-related conditions. In terms of research, we are extremely committed to producing research into MECFS because we're crucially aware of the lack of it. Um, We gained NHS ethics approval to test the validity of an integrative functional medicine model within an RCT format, which is a huge step forward. This process has been challenging, you know, particularly with the COVID impact on research and funding, which, you know, has been felt widely, I think, by researchers, but we soldier on um, in terms of executing that. We've already published literature on the positive benefits of applying integrative functional medicine for the management of CFS. So there will be more on that from us for sure. And then I'm incredibly excited to announce that we are actually launching a practitioner training course next year. And, you know, our aim is to educate and inform more functional medicine practitioners on ME CFS clinical strategies and tools so that, you know, we can really support a greater proportion of the fatigue community and improve industry understanding of of the conditions. So, watch this space on that. There are are more announcements to follow, but we're extremely excited to be sharing our expertise within the industry. Definitely loads going on, as you say. And what I suppose are your hopes for the future understanding and treatment of CFS? So my hopes for the future would be UK policy and guidance that really represents the condition as it is, and that the fatigue community can at last have a sense of recognition and understanding that's hugely important. And then that we can also continue to invest in better research. And obviously that we can then work on developing protocols which are effective and can give the fatigue community hope and a sense of light at the end of the tunnel with their illness. Yeah, I think that's a really good point as well, because the more I suppose the medical community understands this, the more accessible these treatments are going to be for people because there might be people listening who would love to go down this integrated approach but perhaps they don't have the financial resources to to afford it and and various other factors so is there any sort of advice that you could offer them or any support that they could look into that is more accessible for them I mean, there's a tremendous amount of research out there. And and Lewis Nakul, who I mentioned, you know, there's some superb research papers. And of course, they've created the MECFS Biobank in London to sort of collect blood samples for further research to be conducted, which is extremely important. So it's very important to read the research that is already there and, you know, listen to the experiences of functional practitioners who are out there in the field and, and sort of working with these clients. 
And yeah, I mean, we hope to provide some of that material as we go forward. I think we've always recognized that to work in conjunction with the NHS, which is our, our hope, we have to produce a, a research base that is accessible and that really demonstrates the realities of this condition and the complexities of it. And I think, you know, when we move away from this single cause effect or single trigger or single treatment mentality, that's when we're going to make real progress. To finish off, Kirsty, I always do a quick fire round with my guests. Are you up for this? Let's do it. Okay, so this is Quick Fire with Kirsty Cullen. Sweet or savoury breakfast? Savoury. Tofu or tempeh? Mm, tofu. Kimchi or sauerkraut? Kimchi, I absolutely love it. Cold water swim or morning yoga? Morning yoga, I absolutely love. Ginger or turmeric? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to go with ginger. Lemons or limes? Limes, for sure. And turmeric latte or hot water with lemon? Hot water with lemon. Perfect start to the day. (laughs) Interesting one. I thought you might go for turmeric latte there. Yeah, I shocked you. (laughs) Well, Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been really, really insightful. And if people would like to find out more information about the Optimum Health Clinic, where can they go? They can certainly come to our website, um, so the optimumhealthclinic.com. We would be delighted to have them visit and learn more about us. We are actually just about to launch a, a new website, so hopefully there will be more resources and access on there. We also have um, Facebook and YouTube channels as well, um, and we put a lot of content out there. You know, We're really passionate about sharing as much information as we can, um, so please do have a look for those. Fantastic. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Alice. For more information about nutritional therapy, why not subscribe to Optimum Nutrition magazine? Visit ION's website, ion.ac.uk forward slash magazine for details. You can also follow us on social media at ION underscore nutrition.